Welcome into Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. Later in the program, you'll hear from Brian Arnold, a fantastic pianist, singer, and speaker from the Springfield area that has had to overcome multiple challenges in his life, and he continues to prosper. Republican Representative Kent Hayden wants legislation to help meet a need in Missouri, one that would help train a new and incoming health care workforce. He called it a means to help offset the shortage of costs and medical workers. Anthony Moribeth is with Representative Hayden. We're talking with Republican Representative Kent Hayden of Mexico, Missouri, here on Show Me Today. His proposed House Bill 1162. It relates to provisions for a graduate medical education grant program. So welcome back to Show Me Today, Representative Hayden. Explain your House Bill to our listening audience. Thank you very much. Uh, House Bill 1162 actually is a product of a uh, summer study group on how to control health care costs. And uh, Speaker Plocker set it up as originally a caucus group. And uh, this, is a, this is a non-political issue. It's really a statewide issue, and whether you're Democrat or Republican. So we actually added uh, Democrat members to the study group. So it's a, this is a bipartisan product, and we were assigned to look at how do we control health care costs uh, in the state, or long-term, how do we deal with health care? And to do that, we had to come up with, okay, what are the real problems, or what we call chokehold areas for health care? And our committee, reckoned, uh, we interviewed people from uh, universities, we interviewed people from uh, hospital association, nursing associations, uh, a, a lot of different industry groups, as well as a lot of individuals in the healthcare area. And we came up with two two areas of, that appears are certainly chokeholds. One was in nursing, and because of the the efforts of, or not the efforts, but because of traveling nurses and the uh, nurse practitioners having such a higher salary than teaching, we've developed a real gap area in the teaching and nursing. But the governor had, uh, had in his budget, had some corrections for that. So the other area we, we saw, which is actually our number one area, is that in the world of physicians, and Missouri is, has, uh, in our counties, we only have one county that has adequate number of health care, including physicians, that's Platt County. St. Louis County has an area that has uh, adequate health care, and Kansas, uh, Jackson County in Kansas City has an area of adequate health care, but not the whole counties. So that leaves the rest of the state, other than those three areas, uh, very deaf, deaf from short to very, very short on health care including all of our physicians. So if we look at what's going on with our physicians, there is an, what can read to be a medical doctor, whether you're an osteopath or an MD, you have to go through, uh, you have to go through residency. And residency is a really odd world. There's a system called MATCH. And if you ever had anybody who's went through the MATCH, what happens is that if you, when you graduate in your senior year, uh, last year of medical school or osteopathic school, you will apply for residencies that you would like to go to in specific areas. For instance, it may be in uh, family medicine. It may be in urology. It may be in neurology. And you apply to 
uh, schools who you'd like to attend. Then off of that, they make a list of students who have come through their uh, matching system, and they make a selection. And if your list is the same as if you're on their list and and uh, the list match, then you can go there to residency. Now here's the here's the conundrum: residencies have all, most, virtually all, have been sponsored by. Medicare and Medicaid through the federal government. And over the last 25 years, they have not added additional doctors or additional additional residency slots. That is a a, a real, we've increased Medicaid in all the states at one or two. We've had Obamacare. We have an aging population. We have a bigger immigrant population. You know, in 20 years, we just have a general increased need for medical care. And yet we've started on position. Now we attended to try to balance that balance that out with nurse practitioners, but nurse practitioners are not the same as a doctor, as a as an Indian osteopath. So what we're looking at is Missouri is particularly short in the primary care area, and that would be uh, family medicine, OBGYN, pediatrics psychiatry, oh, and internal medicine. Those are the areas that we're particularly short on. So what we're looking at, federal government has talked about increasing the number of residencies, but they haven't. And if we don't do something statewide, right now, to give you an example, the, the turmoil, Missouri is about number three in the nation per capita in the number of medical residents that we put that we produce each year out of medical school or osteopathic school. But we're number 37 in the nation in the number of residency spots we have. So basically, we're training residents, it's training doctors, but because of the lack of residencies, they have to go out of state. We're about a third short on the number of residencies as we have compared to the number of students we produce. If they go somewhere else for residency, uh, another state, their chances of coming back to Missouri are very, very low. So what we've done is that we came up with a, uh, that the state of Missouri would sponsor 20 residencies a year, and that could vary up to 20 or 22, for the next 10 years in these high-need areas. At the end of 10 years, we would be holding somewhat steady and have probably lost some ground compared if we don't do it. Now, if we don't do it, then we're drastically short of residents and consequently doctors. So what's the eligibility criteria for this bill? The eligibility criteria was that the Department of Health would develop a set of criteria that for the people who provide residencies, and these could be hospitals, some of them are university hospitals, some of them are federally funded clinics that currently have residencies, but this would pay for an additional residencies in these areas. And the Department of Health would come up with criteria of who would get the residence, who would get the residency slots, and basically uh, with a high priority on how many how many of your students that you currently have in residency are Missouri uh, natives. And that's an important part because the Missouri natives are much more likely to come back and stay in the state. What percent of your 
residencies are currently filled by students who went to school, either at medical school in Missouri. What percentage of slots are being filled by uh, people who graduated from a medical school in Missouri or an osteopathic school? And then uh, another additional that we have extra weight, what does your res current residency program have that relates to placing, uh, selecting students who would go into high areas of need, such as Bothwell and Sedalia, as a rural track residency? And it, it is designed to bring people for residents back into Sedalia, Missouri, Bothwell Hospital. Very good program. Those residencies are trying to develop other places, say, say Hannibal, say Lebanon, say uh, in the Springfield area, if you know Springfield is urban, they go back into the rural areas around Springfield. So that's what we're trying to uh, basically have a ranking system of here's who the residency goes to and here's what your selection process for the organizations that provide residency. And we originally looked at trying to tie the residency to people who actually come back into living tiny areas because of the MAT system. You cannot put any criteria on the MAT system uh, like that. So what we're trying to do is get more residencies and we think we can we can fill our needs or help fill our needs in tiny areas providing the extra residencies. Show me the day. Women hear a lot about self-care these days. Advice on ways to relax, exercise, eat healthy, and more. Those are all great. But one of the most important self-care steps we can take is making sure we're financially secure later in life. That means saving money for retirement. It's never too late to start. And it's the kind of self-care that brings peace of mind that lasts. For small steps you can take to save for retirement, visit WeSaySaveIt.org. That's WeSaySaveIt.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. A Shiro's work is never done. You care for the house, the kids, and our future. We're so grateful for all you do. Now it's time to care for yourself and save a little more for retirement. A free three-minute online chat can give you the personalized tips you need to boost your retirement savings now. Visit aceyourretirement.org today. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Talking to your kids about the dangers of vaping can be hard. Getting them to listen to hot gossip is easy. So here's some drama you could share with your kid. Dude, did you hear about Cassie and Jake? No, but did you hear that vaping can cause irreversible lung damage and nicotine affects brain development? <gasps> Nuh-uh. You don't need to gossip if you want to have an open conversation about vaping. So if you want to get tips on when and how to talk to your kids, visit talkaboutvaping.org. Brought to you by the American Lung Association and the Ad Council. As a truck driver, I've learned how important road safety is. I know that large trucks need more time and room to stop. That's why I always hang back and follow other vehicles at a safe distance. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, try to remember to always give trucks extra space when you merge in front of them. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. 
Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Back on Show Me Today, Missouri is working to prevent the immediate loss of government benefits like food stamps when participants get a pay raise or consider a job promotion. Elisa Nelson is with the bill sponsor, State Senator Mary Elizabeth Coleman of Jefferson County. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollock, the Mizzou Tiger basketball team getting ready for the SEC tournament. They're a four seed. The tournament starts on Wednesday, but with the Tigers Finishing fourth, they get a double bye, so they'll be off Wednesday and Thursday. They will play Friday. What a finish, considering that this team was picked to finish 11th in the league. A great job by first-year coach Dennis Gates, but he was not named Coach of the Year. That will be shared by Texas A&M's Buzz Williams and Vanderbilt's Jerry Stackhouse. Uh, We'll talk with Mike Kelly, the voice of the Tigers. What does he think about that? We'll have him on later on in the show. And, of course, the weather is starting to get warm, and it's the beginning of fishing. Busy season is right around the corner. Cameron Connor will talk with the Missouri Department of Conservation and their fisheries program specialist, Andrew Branson, about the best times and areas to fish in Missouri as the season moves on. He'll also give insight into some of the best resources that the Department of Conservation offers to keep you up to date. Missouri is working to prevent the uh, immediate loss of government benefits like food stamps when participants get a a job raise or a job promotion. Elisa Nelson talks to the bill sponsor, State Senator Mary Elizabeth Coleman of Jefferson County. One of those pieces I think I'll talk about first and then kind of the second is a continuation of some work that I started in the House. So When I was campaigning for the Senate, I would meet person after person who, because of inflation or because of the uh, minimum wage increase requirements, are finding themselves turning down work or turning down wages because they are currently receiving benefits and they're so afraid to take a bet on themselves that they would be able to have complete independence. So a lot of times the common benefits that somebody who's receiving, um, somebody who's part of the working poor, our friends and our neighbors who are kind of trapped in dependency, they are receiving, you know, maybe a child care subsidy. They might be on food stamps. We call it TANF or SNAP benefits. Um, they may have a health card for their kids, so their kids are able to receive CHIP, uh, which is the state's run Medicaid program for their kiddos. And the way the programs are designed right now is that if you make $1 more than the qualifying amount, uh, then you receive all benefits for that program. And each individual program has a different qualifying level as a percentage of the poverty level, ranging from about 130% of the poverty level to about 185% of the poverty level. So we're talking for a family of three, often a single mom and two kids, um, that's usually right around um, about $22,000 a year they're living off of. Maybe even they're receiving a housing subsidy as well. 
We have unfortunately created a system where we've got an anchor instead of a ladder, because if you can't pick up extra hours, if you can't accept that raise and, and um, that promotion, because you're going to make a, a little bit more, but not enough more to cover the subsidy that you're receiving for your childcare. And so maybe you lose your childcare and then you would lose your job, or maybe you can't uh, qualify for food stamps, but you're not going to make enough money to be able to make up that difference in price. And so what a lot of states have been doing, um, 19 states actually have passed a version of this that would allow you to share that increase with the state. So if you make just a little bit more, then we're going to decrease the benefit that you receive by a little bit. And what happens then is it's not really the first raise or the first time you take extra hours. It's the longer-term upside of that, right? So because when you get a promotion at work, it leads to a second promotion or a third promotion as you're taking on additional responsibility. So it lets people bet on themselves and to be able to climb out of dependency. So that's the first part of the bill. And then the second part of the bill is we make it really hard, um, unfortunately, to both apply for to receive benefits, but also to know when you have to turn your paperwork in to stay on those benefits. And I think that our social safety net programs as a conservative Republican should be um, for those who need it for the very most, uh, who are the most vulnerable. They should be for a set period of time. They should be very clear what you need to be able to get to do to have them and then also clear to know who shouldn't be receiving them anymore. So the second part of the bill makes the application for benefits um, one page or as close to one page as possible. Right now, if you're applying for all of the different types of benefits, it would be 63 pages. Um, that's a lot of duplicative information. Actually, it's almost all duplicative information. It would ask you for your sex about eight times, or it would ask for your address multiple times. And so, you know, let's simplify the, the application. And then also, let's make it clear when somebody has to turn in their paperwork to be able to recertify when they're going to um, to be able to maintain those benefits. So the bill says we should need to make that one page um, or as close to as practicable. And then also it, that reauthorization process is due on tax day every year. People know you have to turn in your paperwork to the government on tax day. So tax day would be the day, or are you just throwing no, that out? No, right. it would be tax day, right. And the bill okay. we're suggesting tax day. Because again, you know you've got to get your paperwork in on tax day, and you've got to get your pay stubs and know what you've made and file your tax return. State Senator Mary Elizabeth Coleman. So has it been not clear to the point where people were actually booted off? Sort of has that situation mm -hmm. happened? Yeah, we, under the COVID protocol, the COVID emergency that's been um, passed federally or in place since really, what, Mar February, March of 2020, we haven't been able to recertify the roles for people who are receiving benefits. That's going to end on April 1st. Once April 1st happens, we're going to have that recertification process. Um, we'll be allowed to double check and see who is eligible. But when this came into the state house, we had also not done recertification just because the state hadn't gotten around to doing it for many years. And in that recertification process, over 100,000 people were dropped from our Medicaid rolls. Um, and there was an outcry from the public about why are we kicking people off of the Medicaid rolls. But those were people who had either never received services and were signed up or had signed up and no longer um, qualified. And so this, again, just kind of makes everybody clear this is what you need to do to stay on the programs, and if you are not qualified, you no longer will be. So I think it's about fairness um, and about making sure that taxpayers' help goes to those who need it the most. 
I seem to recall when you filed your bill about streamlining the application process back in the House that you actually tried to fill out the application and you being a lawyer I think you ran into challenges yeah it's well, not right? it's not easy to, to to figure out and actually Senator Holly Thompson Rader testified in the Senate hearing this year that she was trying to help her sister apply for benefits and she was confused and she's been a legislator for years also. And so when you have people who intimately understand the system, who've been working to try to reform it or to improve it, um, or even lawyers who can't navigate it, it's very hard to expect that everybody else is going to be as well. And so I think that these are programs that are designed to help our neighbors who need it the most. And we have a moral obligation to make sure that we're administering the program in a fair and easy to understand way. And then if you don't qualify, that you no longer are eligible and should stay on the program, right? So it's a kind of a both and. Would there be a cap on this um, for the the portion that Over would the reduce, phase down? Yeah, yeah. That reduce your benefits uh, gradually? Or yeah, so the stair step. So there is. So once you hit three hundred percent of poverty, that family's benefits would end completely. Um, that number I picked because it's what we're currently using for our CHIP program, our children's health insurance program through Medicaid. Once you hit 185% of the poverty level, though, there's a taxpayer component that you pay a bit of a premium, and the premium increases up to 300%. So it's really taking that idea and applying it to the child care subsidies and our food programs as well. But this was all, this sounds like this was really constituent driven. When you mm -hmm. opened, you talked about how this is what you heard heard about when you campaign to run for the Senate. So well, in both really pieces of it are constituent driven because we okay. uh, we were getting calls um, in my office about people who were dropped, who didn't think that they should have been dropped. And we also got calls from people who said they got a letter saying that they were dropped and they didn't remember ever enrolling in the program. So clearly expectation management needed to be, people needed to know when they needed to get paperwork and where they needed to get it and what needed to be provided. So the first piece of the bill, making it cleaner and easier. Um, to apply and then also for the state to be able to recertify who is eligible for the programs is needed. But also, um, I did, I, had, I, met, I met people when I was knocking on doors saying, I, I couldn't put my childcare subsidy at risk and with particularly our big box stores where there's been increases in the minimum wage, we're pushing people out of ability to use those um, to use those programs before they're able to make a gap. And the Biden administration recognizes what this gap is and even has urged the Federal Reserve out of Atlanta. They have a website now where you can put in how much money you make, how big your family is, and it'll tell you what the maximum amount of money you can make so that you don't lose those benefits. That's silly. We don't want people limiting how much money they're willing to make. We want to be able to help people make more so they can be self-supporting. So that was really part of what was driving this bill. State Senator Mary Elizabeth Coleman, thank you for joining Show Me Today. Thanks so much. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past a turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's, it's our roads. It's, it's our safety. safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. 
If you're talking, they will hear you. Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking during the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana and vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Email from school about the incident today. Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on? None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue? No, but you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids. Half the time, it's rumors. It can be hard to tell sometimes, but if you have a concern about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult. Mom or me, a teacher, coach, school counselor, someone you know and trust. Dad, no kid is going to tell an adult about that kind of stuff. I get it, but if we don't know, we can't help. Speaking up about a problem, that's what helping a friend is all about. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. We're back on Show Me Today. I'm your host, Bill Pollack. We're going to wrap up the program with a visit with Brian Arnold, a pianist, singer, and speaker in the Springfield area that had to overcome multiple challenges that life has thrown his way. He lost a leg at the age of six. Another accident later in life left him paralyzed in his left arm. He's here to share his story with Cameron Connor. I did not start playing the piano of my own free will. 
it was my mother's idea. And the reason my mother thought I should learn to play the piano was because I had an unfortunate accident at the age of six years old. I slipped under a riding lawnmower. My left leg was cut off right below the knee. And it was because of that accident, my mother thought I needed to learn to do something that I could do sitting down. And uh, so she thought the piano was a great idea. She bought it for $25, sight unseen, had me start taking piano lessons. I tell people that she, you know, that she had to really make me do that because it was not something I wanted to do. My dad was a basketball coach, and even though I had an artificial leg, he still wanted to grow up and, and be like your dad. And unfortunately, I couldn't run as fast as I as other kids that I couldn't run as long because of my leg and uh, felt sorry for myself. Kids made fun of me and uh, as a kid. So I kind of grew up with a bit of a shoulder, uh, a bit of a chip on my shoulder. And uh, so the piano eventually is what became my identity because the older I got, the better I got. Uh, when I got into high school, I was playing the piano for the choir and all the, you know, the soloists that would go to contests, things like that. I was playing the piano for all their, uh, all their stuff. And then I ended up with a scholarship to college playing classical piano. And there um, I went to Missouri State University. It wasn't called that then, but that's, uh, that's where I went to college. And then from there kind of made my way uh, into the music shows. What a miraculous journey. And one thing that I'd love to touch back on about you learning the piano is the fact that, and you mentioned it a little bit about your, your father being a basketball coach, but up to this point, and I have originally read this in Rural Missouri's article about you, is the fact that music wasn't necessarily up to that point your family's forte, and you were able to take that identity and kind of make it a part of what your family is. So how, how is that? in reality, to find something that you can call your own that eventually was adopted by your family for one of your passions? Well, the thing about it is, is that when I say we were not we were not musically inclined, it wasn't like we sat around singing songs together and, hey, we should play an instrument and do that sort of thing. It was really out of the blue, or I should say out of character, when my mother said, let's do the piano. Now, the change... As I got older and got better, you know, my dad became a pastor and being in a rural church, they're always looking for somebody who can play an instrument and sing a song. So I was instantly, you know, volunteered, if you will, for playing for congregational singing and doing special music. And so I would be learning these things at home and uh, then I'd be singing a song and learning a song. My sisters would sometimes sing with me. And then eventually we got to where all of us would uh, get up there in church and sing a song with me playing the piano. And it didn't happen all the time. It wasn't like we became some traveling group or known as a, as a, as a musical family per se, but it uh, certainly was uh, a wonderful childhood experience. And, uh, you know, my every time I go home uh, to West Plains and sing at my dad my dad's church, you know, my sister will get up and sing one with me if she's there. Every now and then, you can even talk my dad into still getting up and singing. So it, it was a it was it was a great experience. This is Show Me Today, the Voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor.
We are lucky to be joined here today by Brian Arnold. He is a pianist, a public speaker, an evangelist, and he's currently in Silver Dollar City with the Spoken For Quartet Group. We are talking about his story and his journey today. Going back to how you continued and consistently got better at the piano, this led to some scholarships at, at the college that you went to, and that's eventually through that practice and you being a music major, that eventually led to Silver Dollar City and also some careers in Branson and such. That is correct. Yeah, I I left college. I didn't I didn't complete my degree. I was I had a music degree that I was working on, but I had an opportunity to take a job in a music zero. Actually, first up in Osage Beach, um, it was a show called the Mark Sexton's Star World Showroom. Mark had had a show in Vegas for a while. And so he decided to bring his show, I guess, to Osage Beach. And, but when I got this opportunity to audition for this show, um, I think the owner, Mark, I think he just kind of felt sorry for me because, uh, and what I mean by that is I, I think he just kind of liked me and decided to give me a chance because he really didn't need me in his show. He had a keyboard player he brought in from Vegas that played five keyboards at the same time, you know, he had five of them wrapped around him. And I'm thinking, what in the world do you need me for? But it was, it was a, an interesting experience. It was fun. I went from being this, you know, shy little boy, you know, with a chip on his shoulder, embarrassed with my artificial leg, all of that. I went from that person to being on the stage, playing the keyboard, wearing spandex and glitter and, you know, singing everything from, uh, Hank Williams to, you know, the BGs. I mean, just a little bit of everything in between, it seemed like. And so it was, it was quite a, a, a jump and certainly not something that as a teenager, I thought, I'm going to be in a music show. I didn't even know music shows existed until I saw that you know, this theater was auditioning for a, for a band. And uh, so I just took a chance. That then led from that show I eventually moved to Branson. Uh, originally went to work at Walmart in Branson, of all things, and was in the toy department. And if you know anything about that, that's always a mess because the kids playing with toys and all that sort of thing. And my job was yes. to straighten it up, stock the shelves. Not a not a glamorous job at all. But I had a I had a guy walk into that toy department by the name of Gary Wilkinson. And Gary was a member of the Wilkinson Brothers show, which had been the sixth original show in Branson. And they were coming, they were doing a revival of their show. He had gotten my name and uh, he found me, ran me down, found me at Walmart of all things in the toy department. He says, I understand you played the piano. Would you be interested in, um, auditioning for our show and I looked at those shelves and the toys and I looked back at him and I said absolutely I would love that opportunity audition I got the job and it was a fun job from there went to work at the Roy Clark Celebrity Theater which back in the day uh, before all the big stars started coming to Branson uh, that's where Ray Stevens would come for three days at a time and Roy Clark and and Jim Stafford would come there for three days at a time, uh, you know, all these different stars. And so I got to work, you know, as an opening act for so many people from Roger Miller to BJ Thomas, Tanya Tucker, 
Um, it's just an amazing experience. Ricky Skaggs, uh, I could just go on and on. My next job ended up being at Silver Dollar City, working with a group called the Black, uh, the Branson Brothers. They were, at that time, an up-and-coming country quartet, and uh, had a record deal in Nashville, and they were performing at Silver Dollar City in the Echo Hollow Amphitheater, which was a big 4,000-seat amphitheater. And I got the job, started working with, with Silver Dollar City, working with the Branson Brothers. And then that eventually led to the opportunity to start my own gospel group. Uh, I found out Silver Dollar City was going to be replacing uh, a group that was leaving, and I had a little part-time group. We auditioned, and uh, we got the job, and our name was Chosen View. So kind of come all the way around, you know, from singing in church to now singing gospel music at the same park with a quartet. It was a lot of fun. And it was from there that we began to get invitations to go and sing in churches and things like that. Brian, in this chapter, in this part of your journey, is where you were met with another life-redefining moment, right? On January 16th, 1994, was to a church to sing and uh, driving my pickup truck down I-44, headed uh, towards Marshville, Missouri, and I got about as far as Stratford. About that, about that place in the road, I hit black ice and spun out of control and ended up in the other lane of the interstate in front of a semi-truck that was loaded with steel beams. I couldn't get out of his way, and he couldn't get out of mine. It was really a no-fault situation, but he drove that semi-truck over the back end of my pickup, flipping over, and steel beams going all over the place. And I got tangled up in the seat belt and ended up breaking my neck at C2 and 3 and paralyzing my left arm from the shoulder down. And I can remember lying alongside that highway, you know, unable to move my left arm, worried about, we got to get me to the hospital so I can get this fixed. I'm a piano player. My identity is a piano player. I make my living as a piano player. I serve the Lord as a piano player. And uh, lying there thinking, I don't know anyone in a piano player. So it was a big deal. And by the time they got me to the hospital, my arm was actually the last thing they were concerned about. They didn't expect me to live. I had uh, internal injuries, afraid I was going to bleed to death from, partial stroke, all kinds of things going on, and uh, so it was it was quite a quite a an accident, and it left me uh, with my left arm paralyzed from the shoulder down. Show me the day. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for youth. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals into your body. And nicotine, which can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. Learn more at underagedrinking.samsa.gov. We all make choices about alcohol. Kids make choices whether to drink or not. Bye, Dad. Remember, I'm going to Alex's party tonight and sleeping over. Hey, Em, remind me about that party again. And adults make choices whether to talk about it. That's true of parents and every other trusted adult in a kid's life. Kids want to know our expectations, and they want honest answers in everyday conversations. So talk with your kids and help lead them on a positive path. Because when you talk, they hear you. Learn more at underagedrinking.samsa.gov. I'll be here to hear what's on your mind. 
As an adult, kids want to know you're listening to them, but they also want to listen to you. When it comes to alcohol, they want to know your expectations and how and why to avoid underage drinking. Talking early and often about it in everyday conversations reinforces your message and keeps lines of communication open. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Over the past few years, the COVID-19 pandemic has affected how we live our daily lives. Today, one in five Americans experience emotional and mental health challenges, but many of us do not understand what we are facing or how to ask for help. At the American Psychiatric Association Foundation, we work every day to eliminate stigma, combat mental illness and substance use disorders, and advance mental health. If you or someone you love needs help, you are not alone. Please visit mentallyhealthynation.org to learn more. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor. We are lucky to be joined here today by Brian Arnold. He is a pianist, a public speaker, an evangelist, and he's currently in Silver Dollar City with the Spoken For Quartet Group. We are talking about his story and his journey today. For, from the metaphorical perspective, those are those moments that not, and I'm sure just me, me hearing and reacting to that, that make you gasp for air when you hear something like that. And yet during this whole time, you know, I... Even me, I'm thinking back and you're taking me through that journey with you and I'm wondering if you're okay and such. And all you're worried about is what you believe is your message in life, what you believe is your passion in life and how to get back to that. And I think that's a very critical message and it's it's a powerful thing for you to be able to do that, Brian, because there are so many instances like this, but instead of worried about it being in that moment, you're also worried about how you keep moving forward and how you can keep pursuing to live your dream. And that, that's exactly what you've done, correct? Yes, it actually is. And, uh, you know, it's not as simple as just, oh, I make the decision and now we do it. You know, um, I still have to remind myself on a fairly regular basis that uh, my life has purpose. And I think that's, I think that's a message that everybody needs to hear. You know, I live from a biblical perspective. So, I mean, I, I come from a place of, of of an understanding that we were created and God has a plan and a purpose for our life. And that's what gives me the, the, the desire to keep going, that there's something yet to do. And uh, I didn't know what that was. Um, sometimes I still wonder, you know, okay, you know, what are you going to do now? Because the older I get, the more things that seem to break down and, and life is 
always difficult, but you know, that's, that's the way it is for everybody. Everybody's dealing with something, some kind of a problem. And you're a lot of people. The first reaction is to give up. Oh, woe is me. Why did this have to happen to me? And, uh, from the perspective that I live from, it's that I understand that this is a fallen world and there are going to be things that happen. It's unfair. I wish he wasn't this way. And I also don't live with the perspective that God did this to me. You know, God didn't run me over with a lawnmower and he didn't run me over with semi trucks so that I'd have this story to tell. I think the story is that God has the ability to take what we think is a mess and actually turn it into our message, a message of that there is hope, that you have a reason to live. You have a reason to get up in the morning and, and keep going, even when everything else around you seems like it's falling in. And that's what I try to do. And like I said, some days I'm better at it than others. But I've, I've been very fortunate that through the years to use my story in a powerful way, you know, Silver Dollar City was so gracious to let me come back to work right after that accident, wearing a halo brace of all things. And, uh, you know, saying literally to, you know, thousands upon thousands of people, uh, that's thousands, probably even way more than that. But uh, I recently, back in 2020, went back to work at Silver Dollar City with a group called Spoken For Quartet. And it's interesting, after being away from Silver Dollar City for 20 years, that now I have people coming up who were kids that saw me back when the accident happened or shortly thereafter. And they're coming up and sharing how my story encouraged them or how I gave them the, the strength to, to keep going. And... I think that kind of gets back to the question you asked, how, you know, what keeps, you know, what, what gives your life purpose? Well, it's understanding that sometimes it's not in the immediate. It's, it, it, it's a seed that gets planted and, and you may not even realize the impact your life is having until much later. If even then, I mean, that's what gets, that's what keeps me going. It's an extremely powerful message. And so why, why don't you talk to me about your position now with, with Silver Dollar City, with Spoken For Quartet? How, how has that been? You know, I'm assuming it's still kind of living in a dream to be able to still do these things. It, it's You also learned how to play the piano with just your right hand as well, correct? That is correct. Um, the interesting thing about learning to play the piano with one hand when I was a teenager, I was classically trained. That's how I got my scholarship to college, playing classical music. And I learned Rachmaninoff, Beethoven, Chopin, all kinds of wonderful, beautiful pieces. But my piano teacher was an old concert pianist, and he had me learn an all-left-handed piano piece, classical piece where you don't use your right hand, you just take the left hand and you play this classical piece and it was all over the piano. Now, there was no way for me to know as a teenager that that was going to actually be a seed planted that I was going to need to reap from later. So you fast forward to after my accident with the semi and my arm being paralyzed, 
that I'm sitting there going, what am I going to do now? They're telling me this is never going to work again. I make my living as a piano player with this group. What am I supposed to do? And then it's like sitting down at that piano with just my right hand and going, oh, well, wait, let's try this. I remember doing this with my left hand. And the light bulb kind of started to come on, and I began to develop a style of playing that uh, allowed me to just use the one hand, right hand. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's an interesting thing how life sometimes all these dots begin to connect. And uh, so you fast forward to today. Now I'm with this quartet being able to be back at Silver Dollar City. I, I still travel when I'm not at Silver Dollar City. I'm, I mean, I'm on the road. Uh, I do a lot of speaking engagements, revival work, that sort of thing. But uh, Silver Dollar City in 2020, you know, obviously everything was shut down because of COVID in 2020. And I didn't have any work going on. And this quartet called me and said, hey, Silver Dollar City is going to open back up. We need a piano player. Would you be interested in, in coming and playing and singing? And, and I said, absolutely. You know, better than staring at the four walls of my house. And uh, again, I never dreamed I'd be back there. No, for no particular reason other than I just thought that season of life was over. And now to be back with, you know, John and Cecil and Brandon out there singing with this group, it's it's just it's a fun experience. It's it's I, I'm reliving a lot of it just because you know I did it for over ten years with Chosen View, and now to be back, it's a totally different feeling, and uh, it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. So Brian, it's safe to say that you have the fastest right arm and hand and fingers on this side of the Mississippi, right? <laughs> you have to. Well, I, I have I had a pretty fast hand. That's for sure. Yes. <laughs> Well, I'm glad to hear that. And Brian, I want to thank you so much for your time here today on Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. Show me today.